Well, good morning. This is on, right? Good. Wonderful. Uh, it is wonderful to be with you all. My wife, Emily, our three-year-old Sutton, our soon-to-be one-year-old daughter, Asher, they send their greetings as well. They are half at the in-laws, and then we're about three weeks post the URC plague that ran through our entire church. So just to be on the safe side, I'm flying solo this morning. Uh, but it is wonderful to be with you all here. Please join me in prayer as we ask for God to reveal himself in his word. Father, we ask for you to enlighten us through your word. We pray to be guided by your word and your voice alone. We approach your word knowing that it is the word of life. It is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Your word is not to be handled lightly, so we do approach it with awe and humility. We are undeserving of the goodness and beauty of your holy scripture. We thank you for giving us a scripture which does not leave us in darkness or confusion, but brings us closer to you. So we pray to treasure your word and to never take it for granted. Tune our hearts to hear the voice of the shepherd, the only one who can restore our soul. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Christ Jesus. Amen. So I actually want to start with uh, probably what we don't usually start with. I want to start with a brief survey. So it's the Christmas season or at work or at the marketplace, wherever you are, just a show of hands when you are living out your Christian faith, when you are with unbelieving friends or family or loved ones, how many of you ever feel tension in your lives living out as a Christian? Anyone? Right. Most of the room. Same hands, even in that difficulty, even in that tension, how many of you feel God's hand in that, that there is purpose there, that even in difficulty, even in seasons where sharing your faith is not the easiest thing, that you know that God is present in all of that? Same hands. Amen, right? If you took that survey throughout all of church history, I think you would probably see the same answers, that it is not the easiest to live your life as a Christian. There are certainly seasons where it's a little bit easier. There are times of history where it's a little uh, gentler on the faith. But overall, I think you'd see, see those similar hands go up. And that shared experience is something that Christians throughout all ages share with one another. And it is that shared experience that we will study in our passage today that we will look at in God's word today. So with that being said, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 and 2. Now in this pew Bible, it is telling me it's page 1203. However, in this, it's telling me it's page 1014. So just go past the book of James, stop at 1 Peter, whatever Bible you are using, and we will all get through this together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. Hear now the words of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, 
Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. For the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Thanks be to God. So this letter begins with a fear greeting from the writer of this letter. This is the Apostle Peter. This is one of the 12 disciples. This is one of the big three of the disciples, if you want to call him that, with Peter, John, and James. This is the Apostle Peter who walked out on the water in faith towards Jesus only to doubt and to start to drown before he was rescued and saved. This is the Apostle Peter who, on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Elijah and Moses, only knew how to respond by asking, can I build a tent for you? This is the Apostle Peter who said he would not deny his Lord and his Savior only to deny him three times and then to be restored to Jesus three times on that bonfire at the beach. And I think it's for this reason and honestly many others that if we had to choose our favorite biblical character and it can't be Jesus, that's a cop-out answer, I think many of us choose Peter. He's kind of a goofball. He's cocky at times. He falls short. He fails. He wants to love his Lord and then he sins. And that's many of our lives. That's much of our story. Imperfect people who are striving to love their Lord and yet fall short. It is this Peter who is now at this point of his ministry is much more seasoned. He's growing up. He is no longer a fisher with his brother Andrew, but now he's a fisher of men. And the church at this point is starting to grow up. It is still young, but is growing. And as a toddler grows up, as many of you are familiar, they are learning how to walk, learning how to run, learning how to talk. And yet they're still reaching up to their parents, to their mom and their dad, asking for help. And the early church here, they need help. They are looking for help. So it would make sense that they look for help to the apostles. They look to John. They look to Paul. And in this instance, it is Peter that they are looking to. So Peter grabs his equivalent of first century pen and ink, and he writes away to the recipients of this letter, the audience of this letter. And he tells them who they are, which sets the stage for this letter. And then the rest of this letter, which we obviously will not have time today to study, he tells them how they are to live. But in this introduction, he shares with these elect exiles, as he calls them, three foundational realities. That they are placed there for a reason that they are kept by God and grace 
and peace are multiplied to them. So first, they are placed there for a reason. Peter calls his audience here, as we just said, elect exiles. And these exiles, they are all located in Asia Minor. So what is today modern-day Turkey? But it's not as if all these exiles are neighbors. So if you're looking from Cappadocia to Bithynia, you're looking at about 800 miles. So us in Michigan to Vermont is about 800 miles. And I don't think any of us would call a, is it Vermontian? Maybe. I don't think any of us would call someone from Vermont a neighbor. So Peter is not drawing so much on the fact that they all live in Asia Minor, but rather that they are all elect exiles. So when we say elect, what does that mean? And when we say exile, what does that mean? Well, briefly, elect is all in reference to a work of God, that for his own glory, he has chosen a people to be redeemed by Jesus. And uh, exile, for a lot of us in this room, this might be an easier category in our head. We can look at wars going on all throughout the globe. We can look at exiles for people who have to leave their homelands. But it's a person or a group of people who simply, they don't have a place to lay down their head. They don't have that safety and security that many of us through God's grace do have. But isn't it interesting that he calls them elect exiles? Because if they are elect, you would expect for them to have a place to lay their head, a place of security. Now, this language is not being used for the first time either. Elect exiles, if we had alarms here, it'd be the alarms would be going off, uh, lights would be flashing. This is an instruction for us to run to our Old Testament because this is a historical phrase for God's people. Think back with me. In some ways, elect exiles is the descriptor of the entire Old Testament story. Abraham, he's called to leave his homeland and go be an elect exile in the land of Canaan. The Israelites, to escape famine, go down into Egypt and are in many ways elect exiles. Those same Israelites, years later, when they are now fleeing Egypt and going back to the promised land, they are elect exiles. In their wilderness wanderings, they are elect exiles. And many years later, when the kingdom of Israel is divided into two, Judah and Israel, and the kingdoms are conquered, and the Israelites are sent out to Babylon and Susa and other places in the ancient Near East, they are there, elect exiles. And all throughout the Old Testament history is the theme of the elect exiles looking for something or someone greater. And now in this letter, Peter is appropriating this language and using it to describe first century Christians. And think about how being called an elect exile would help them here tremendously. They are no longer looking for something greater or someone greater as they can look back to the cross and the finished work of Jesus. But they are outcasts. They are misfits. They are often hated by their pagan neighbors. 
We can think back in history to first century Rome and the Colosseum games where Christians were often put into the games and brutally mauled and killed by animals such as lions. Or if history is true here, and we do have some reason to believe it is true, that it records the Emperor Nero in the first century and his hatred for Christians. He would use them and prop them up in the streets that night as live torches to light up the night streets. So when I say that these Christians were hated, I think we can't even say hated. That seems a little weak of a word. They are despised. So this language is meant to be a helper. But no, they are not mere exiles for their faith in Jesus. They are elect exiles. And in being elect exiles, these Christians are placed in Bithynia, Cappadocia, and the rest of Asia Minor for a reason. Because it is God who ordains. And it is God who elects. And we want to be careful not to go beyond the words of Peter here in our passage. Peter does not say that you are elect exiles to fulfill this or that will of God. Rather, simply, they are elect exiles and implicitly believe that as they live faithful lives, then the will of the Lord will be revealed to them more and more and in greater ways. God has them there in Asia Minor for his good reasons. And dear Christian, God has not made a mistake where he has placed you. You are of the same family tree as these elect exiles. And you too can claim the title. Because God has put you here, you can take comfort that God in his good providence and for good reason has you in these pews. Remember that you are an exile. You can take comfort that God has put you in your house that keeps breaking, that God has put you in that neighborhood that keeps fighting, that God has put you in that dysfunctional family that keeps bringing up arguments at Christmas, that God has put you in your city that keeps dishonoring the name of Jesus. Wherever you are, wherever, there's great opportunity to be had for the service of Christ and for the building up of his kingdom. Now, we want to be careful here how we speak about serving God. Some could believe that the Christian life just simply causes us to be missionaries, that the Christian life just causes us to remote jungles, wherever that may be, or the Siberian wilderness. Therefore, the only reason that you're at Good Shepherd is to ultimately go forth somewhere new and somewhere dangerous, and that if you don't, you are sinning. Well, first, this is just foolishness, because it ignores the reality of where you are right now. Do not forget that you are a new creation. As you, the new creation, interact with the old creation around, there is great redemptive work being done. Secondly, it places an unfair burden on the many of us who cannot just simply pack up and go. And lastly, this belief 
that you're only here to eventually go, it really leads to a soft disdain for your community where the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, that where you are now is just boring, that there's always something better out there. And spoiler alert, uh, it's a wonderful life. It's my favorite movie of all time. Not just Christmas, but favorite movie. Makes me cry every time. But you are not to be the protagonist, George Bailey, throughout most of the movie, where he only wants to leave Bedford Falls and get to somewhere greater. There are many Bedford Falls in Michigan, including here, that need many faithful Christians to reside, to stay, to serve, and to love their communities. But we also need to be careful that we are not ignoring God's call on our life. God's calling is why this church is here. God's calling is why faithful churches as... uh, your pastor just alluded to, are being planted all throughout the state on the west side, the east side, moving north. And it is desperately needed. There are many Michiganders who do not have access to the faithful gospel that saves. If God is calling you to wherever he pleases, you need to go. But don't kick a door down only to break open its hinge. Uh, probably about a month and a half to two months ago, I'm at the evening service at University Reformed Church. Again, a three-year-old and one-year-old, so bedtime just doesn't work well with our evening service, so I'm flying solo. And I get a text from my wife. She says, hey, don't panic. The kids aren't in there, but Sutton, our oldest daughter, she locked the bathroom door. And of course, the tub is running. Classic situation. (laughs) I said, all right, do you need me to come home? No, I think we'll figure it out. Five minutes later, she calls me and she says, problem solved. I kicked the door down. Good for her. I don't think I probably could have done that. So love my wife. Needless to say, despite our best DIY efforts, uh, despite us switching some doorknobs out and putting in the bumper so that the door closes properly, it's probably not called a bumper. So don't kill me if you know what it's actually called. That door is still not fixed. And until the day we moved, it's not going to be fixed. It is what it is. Look, God is going to open doors in your life. You just need to simply walk through them faithfully when he does. Wherever you reside, here or there, as an elect exile, it is for a reason. You are chosen but you are a stranger to what increasingly feels like a foreign land all around you. But God has not made a mistake. God has not mistakenly placed you in the, this is the 49006 zip code, right? No? Okay. Or the 10 other Kalamazoo zip codes, wherever you are, or your Portage zip code, or mine in Holt, Michigan, the 48842. He has not mistakenly placed you there. God has not made a mistake by placing a mark on you that distinguishes you from others. Your community should look at you, and even if they do not know that you are an elect exile, can recognize that there is something different about you, that there is something odd. You smell different. You have that Christ aroma. You stink. 
R.C. Sproul writes, The sweetest fragrance, the most beautiful aroma that God has ever detected emanating from this planet, was the aroma of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus that was offered once and for all on the cross. That sweetest fragrance, it's on you. You look different. Your clothes have been washed in the blood of Christ, and it will freak some out. But God will use these distinct markings to call many to saving faith in his son. These distinct markings will show the beauty of Christ to many others. But you are not an elect exile place for a specific reason and just left to your own devices. And neither is this the case for Peter's original audience. So rather, as we unpack our second reality, they are kept by God. Now let's start with making one thing here when clear here when it says that they are kept by God. God's reference is not a reference in keeping his people in one place or one job. It is not an earthly keeping. Rather, as elect exiles, they are kept in his hands. Peek back at the text. Peter writes, they are elect exiles, quote, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So bear with me here. I know that those are some weighty theological terms in the span of one single sentence, but Peter's words do make sense, and there is a purposeful order. So the sentence starts with foreknowledge, that God knew us, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then sanctification, holiness, that you are set apart and then sprinkled. This is Old Testament language that you are cleansed. So first known, then set apart and cleansed. And this is one connected train of thought. The Apostle Paul, he writes in the one of the more famous chapters in all of Scripture, the, the great Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Theologians over time refer to Paul's words here as a golden chain of redemption. It begins with God, and it ends with God, glorifying his people. It is an interconnected and purposeful work of God. Again, it's a chain. God begins it. God finishes it. And in our passage, Peter is drawing on the same thought process. They are elect exiles, and none of it is by happenstance. None of it is by chance. Yet this is not a distant relation between God and his elect. Uh, we can think about it this way. When we were a dog watching, when we were dog sitting, when we were keeping watch over a dog. Yeah, we may fail. 
The carpet may get chewed up here and there. But at worst, we're checking in sporadically. And at best, we can proudly wear the tag of dog sitter. We take ownership of our keeping. Our watch for keeping may even earn us the reputation among friend groups that we are the ones to call to keep watch over their dog. Or you can think of it this way. Over the past year or so, I have found out that I have a great green thumb. So I just have all these plants at home now that I'm taking care of. And my prized plant possession is the olive tree in my basement. Uh, I water this thing probably a little too much. Uh, pesticides. We have given this plant showers. I am taking care of this plant. I am pruning the leaves below the trunk level so that the higher leaves have more nutrients. But for the past year, this thing has been attacked by a pest that I cannot get rid of. So almost every day, I'm there just picking it off with my hands because nothing is working. And that's me with an olive tree. Why should we expect any less of our holy triune God who keeps us? He fully keeps us. He removes the imperfections from our lives. He waters us through his word and through his spirit. He grows us. He gives us nourishment. Listen to the very words of our Redeemer, Christ Jesus, to all those that he saves. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Christ is keeping you. He's keeping you. And look, I do not want to deny that as sheep, we are to obey our shepherd. Peter writes of our obedience to Christ in this passage. But God is not in the heavenlies looking for ways down to get out of his keeping. He's not looking for a clause to void the contract. He's not up there saying, I keep him, I keep them not. He's not picking daisies off the flowers. No, when you are doubting your union with Christ, when you are thinking that there is no way that he could keep a wretched sinner like me. You're thinking, I just got mad at my wife and my kids. It was unfair. And I swore at them before leaving the home. Or I'm going to have a great day today. I'm going to church to praise the Lord. Someone's driving a little too slow in front of me and they cut me off and I flip them off. Or I'm struggling immensely with lust and pride. And I stumble and I look at illicit material that I should not be looking at. There is no way that God is keeping a wretched sinner like me. And to you, look no further than the cross. The meeting place of judgment and mercy where our innocent and gentle and lowly Jesus shed his blood that seals to us, to all who are repentant, that we are truly his and that we are forever kept. Not only does God keep his elect exiles, that is a mercy that exiles do not deserve. But as we will see in our final reality, grace and peace are multiplied to them. 
Peter ends this introduction to his letter here with a benediction. And I know that as good Presbyterians here, we're used to some lovely benedictions. But it's often a word that gets thrown around, and we some of us don't actually know what that word means. We hear benediction, but we never ask, well, what does that actually mean? And that was me for much of my life. If that's you, let me just comfort you. A benediction, it's a blessing. It simply means a blessing. So the blessing that Peter writes is, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And something that's helpful in understanding blessings or benedictions in Scripture is that the word may in Scripture is not as loose or undecided as the way that we use the word may. Right? I may go to the Western Michigan game tonight. While that qualifies, I may or I may not go. If we were honest with ourselves as good Michiganders, most of the time when we were answering I may go is our polite way of saying I'm not going. Because as Michiganders, we hate to say no. So we say I may. Our may is usually no. But that is not what Peter is writing here to the elect exiles. He's not saying, well, maybe or maybe not God will multiply grace and peace to you. If we want to get technical here, in the Greek, the may is not even there. It's in our English. It's much more definite. God's grace and peace is truly theirs. And it is truly yours if you're in Christ. Again, this is not picking off the petal of daisies. He loves me. He loves me not. His grace is with me. His grace is with me not. No, God's word is a promise to his people. God blesses us through his word. We will readily confess that only God is worthy to be blessed. But as John Kleinig, a pastor, writes, all blessings come from him. They are his property, supernatural gifts, divine powers that create, protect, and foster life. Yet even though they belong to God, he does not keep them to himself. He delegates them for delivery to his creatures. He delegates them in such a way that he does not relinquish them, but oversees their operation according to his providence. It delights God to multiply grace and peace to you. It does. It delights God, as is written in number six, known as the Aaronic benediction, that it delights him to lift up his face upon you. It delights him to lift up his countenance upon you and to give you peace. He is our heavenly father who loves his children. But the blessings of God, this multiplication of grace and peace, it's not for everyone. In Ephesians 1, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And if I was reading Ephesians 1 there, I would be sure to under, underline that two-letter word, us. He has blessed us. 
Now, it's not a bad instinct. And in moments, of course, it should be properly done. But we have this tendency in our everyday lives to use blessing language to all people. The phrase, God bless you, right? We're throwing it around to Christians and non-Christians alike. And ironically, and somewhat sadly, we often only say it when someone's sick. In the context of sneezing. And we want to be careful. We don't want to be Pharisees here. I'm not arguing with your unbelieving co-worker that when they sneeze, you go, oh, nope, no blessing for you today. Don't do that. As John Mark Homer, a Christian thinker, writes, be fully present to each breath, each experience, to each person you interact with. Attempt to see them as Jesus does. See if you can bless the people you meet. You can do something useful for them. Even if it's as simple as holding a door open or you can literally say bless you. It will feel a bit cheesy because our world is so full of cursing and contempt. But you will tap into the flow of the Trinity's love. But we are to be clear here that this grace and peace which Peter writes about is multiplied to those who are only in Christ Jesus. Yes, rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun rises on the good and the evil. But ultimate and eternal grace is only reserved for God's people. It's the ultimate VIP pass. I implore you, I truly do, look inward. Ask yourselves if you can confidently state that this grace and peace blessing spoken of in this passage, is it yours? Is it mine? Am I bought with the precious blood of Jesus that perfectly saves? And if it isn't yours, if that is not you, if you do not profess the name of Christ, you are not only missing out on something good, something enjoyable. But you are being kept. Kept for judgment and kept for an eternity separated from our holy triune God. God's word today calls on you to repent of your sins and to believe in the finished work of Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it is my hope that you see it is a worthwhile and beautiful thing to be an elect exile. In your exile, you may feel as a foreigner, but the triune God, the redeemer of your soul, has placed you where you are for a reason. He has placed you in this covenant community for his good purposes. He is keeping you. He is propping you up in your faith through the word and through the sacraments. In your daily lives, he is keeping, keeping grace and peace upon you. Grace upon grace upon grace, peace upon peace upon peace. And I know for many of you who love the Lord Jesus, that there are long days where you do not feel this grace and peace. You just don't feel it. There are many difficult seasons. But it is there because his promises are sure. And a day is coming when all things are made new. 
when our Lord does return for his people, where that grace and peace will be ultimately felt. Until then, until that glorious day, keep living as the elect exiles that God calls you to be. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for another Lord's Day. What a blessing and joy and privilege it is to meet. What a gift your scripture is to us. Father, as we have read in this passage, as we have studied, we are thankful that though we are elect exiles, that there is wonderful beauty, grace, and purpose behind it, that there is redemptive work that is being done here and will be done for a thousand generations. We are thankful, Lord, that as elect exiles, we are placed for a reason. We are kept by you, Lord. And when we are doubting our union, when we are suffering, that your grace and your peace is ours. Thank you, Lord, for this church. And as we will sing shortly here, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.